So I recently Googled the phrase, my parents abandoned me. And wow, that was heartbreaking. That was awful. I read about a college student who, uh, who her mom uh, dropped her off at her grandparents and never came back when she was 12 years old. I read about a man who was abandoned by his mom at 12 years old and by his dad before he was even born. And so as, you're, as I'm reading these accounts, I'm reading about deep hatred. I'm reading about intense sadness, unanswered questions. I read about a longing for a family that never was. It was awful. And then equally awful was the advice that I read from, from the comments or, or doctors who were saying things like, pay attention to your feelings, um, accept that you're valuable, be the best you that you can be, uh, show them that they made a mistake, turn your lemons into lemonade. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. That, that brings us to Psalm 10 today, because I know there are some of you here who were either emotionally or were physically abandoned by your parents. I know that there are some of you here, maybe some of the same people who, who you feel as a result of your experiences that you were abandoned by God. No matter how hard you tried, you lost your job because someone sabotaged you or you had horrible things done to you by people that that you should have been able to trust, that that, that said they loved you. A family member is not all there mentally or physically and and all the responsibility to care for them falls on you. A person pretending to be a friend stole all your money, your spouse hates you, or your spouse left you for for a newer model and took all your money and seems to be having a great life while you're suffering, while you're, while you're in pain, or your spouse passed away suddenly, or your, your family member is in jail and you wish that you could spend time with them because they didn't do what they were convicted of, but, you, but you're just left going, God, where are you? What's going on here? Now, there, there, there's suffering that we experience because of choices that we've made, and, and that's not Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is suffering as a result of choices other people made. And it's the fallout of their sin that is affecting us. Like there's none of us is innocent before God. We've all fallen short of his glory. We've all sinned. But in very real ways, there are experiences that we have where, where we are innocents, right? No one deserves to be abandoned by their parents. Doesn't, no one deserves to be abandoned by a spouse or a family member. No one deserves to have their spouse hate them. They, no one deserves to be violated or to be mugged or to find your car broken into or your identity stolen or being tricked into a Ponzi scheme and losing all your savings. All, and all of that, if any of that's happened to you or something similar, you might resonate with Psalm 10.1. Take a look at it. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? God, why are you far from me? Why, do you, why does it seem like you're, you've, you've, you've distanced yourself from me? Psalm 10 is in the Bible because each of us is going to experience betrayal, injustice, undeserved suffering in this sinful world. And we will wonder. We will honestly have times of deep, truly wondering, did God abandon me? This psalm is this ancient song. That's what a psalm is. It's a song. will teach all of us how to endure undeserved suffering. The undeserved suffering that David is singing about in Psalm 10 was experienced by weak and vulnerable people at the hands of, notice verse 2, wicked people. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. A wicked person, as we're going to see described in, in, in Psalm 10, is somebody who's arrogant, who's dismissive, who's deceitful. He's an expert at mistreating people, taking advantage of them, treating them like garbage, thinking of ways to harm people, and lives his life like God isn't even there. Look at the end of verse 3. 
He curses and renounces God. And to verse 4, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Take a look at verse 11. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see. What if that's your boss and you can't get a new job? What if that's your mother-in-law? What if that's your spouse? What if that's your sibling? How will you endure this undeserved suffering that you're going through and do it in a way where you're solid, where you're strong, where you come through it and, and, you, and, and you've actually grown in the midst of it, that you're actually able to worship in the midst of it? Not by, not by, not by cutting your head off and being like, okay, head over here, now just pretend like everything's okay. This passage is not biblical Prozac. This is not going to encourage you to pretend. This is not going to encourage you. This is not just like fake religious advice. It's a song about honest anguish and genuine counsel. It's about facing the truth. Most of all, it's about how do I interact with God in the midst of undeserved suffering? How do I understand him? How do I relate to him? How do I, how do I interact with the truth that I know about him when everything around me is saying he's abandoned me, but his word said he has not, he will not, he cannot abandon me. How do I, how do I live in that? That's what this psalm is about. And it's personal. It's not written by some, I don't know, some theologian in an ivory tower. It's written by the man, by men who felt abandoned, who felt afraid. He was angry as he was experiencing suffering and as he was seeing suffering uh, being perpetrated on other people. So if you've been oppressed, victimized, abandoned, or traumatized, or if you know someone who has gone through that and you want to help them, that is Psalm 10. Now there's a, this sense of isolation. We saw it in verse one, the sense of absence. More than feeling like God is hidden, what is being said here in verse one is that, God, why haven't you intervened yet? Why haven't you acted? There, there's this urgent need for God to end the suffering that's still going on. The wicked are still being wicked. And then what David is doing, is he's saying, you seem so distant. You seem like, like I, I need you the most and you're not there. Where are you? So he's crying out to God for help in verse one. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now listen, David is not asking that question out of pride. He's not asking it out of unbelief to blame God for the suffering that he's experiencing. The question is, is not really an accusation. That, that would be sinful. David asked these questions to a God who he said was far away, who he said was hiding. But notice, he's talking to God. He knows that God is not far away. He knows that God is there. He knows that God hadn't left him. When I was a kid growing up, my sister and I, we loved to play hide and seek. So we played at home. When we were young, we played at church. There's this room that was, wasn't used at church. And so we were there for all the services. And so we'd go play hide and go seek in there. Now, here's the thing. When, when we were playing hide and seek, let's say it's, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm the one who's it and I've got to go find her. Just because she was hiding, it didn't mean she was distant, right? She was actually right there. And just because she was hiding... It didn't mean that she was absent. She was right there, right? Even though I couldn't see her, she was there. And that's God for David. He's like, I, I know you're there. I, I, I know you're there, so I'm gonna pray to you. And I, and I know you're, you're gonna answer, even though I don't see you, even though, though I really want you to act, I want you to end my suffering, I'm, I'm gonna pray to you. And why does he feel abandoned by God? Why is he so upset? Look at verse two. In arrogance, he starts describing the, he gives the resume of the wicked. This is how the wicked treat people. Verse two, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. 
Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked can't, does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Verse 2, David prays, the end of verse 2 there, that the boomerang of God's justice will come back and get the wicked. Like the story of, of Daniel in the lion's den. You remember that? Where, how did Daniel end up in the lion's den? You remember? There were a group of people that wanted him there. And so there's trumped up charges and fake laws and all that stuff, all to get him into the lion's den. Well, how does the story end? The people that wanted Daniel in the lion's den, what? They ended up in the lion's den. The boomerang came around back on them. Why did he want the boomerang? Because verse two, look at the wicked are arrogant. And that arrogance drives them to plot and scheme and take advantage of people who are weaker than they are. Verse three, they don't hide their sin. They boast about it. They're ruled by their lusts. They're, they're ruled by what they want. They're not ruled by what God wants. And notice it says in verse three, so they, they curse God. They demean him. They mock him. They do whatever they want. Deep down, notice verse three, they, they renounce him. They hate him. Because they, they refuse to live with any connection to him at all. They don't care what he wants because they're driven by what, by what they want. Those who cause other suffering, in other words, start by being rebels against God. Once they've rebelled against him, it's easy to treat other people poorly. And it is in the treating other people poorly that you see that they're actually in rebellion against God. They repent from God. And then they give their lives to whatever it is that they want, whether it's financial, whether it's their bodies, whether it's somebody else's body, whether it's reputation, whatever it is, they're driven by that. They're not driven by pleasing God because if they were, they wouldn't be treating people these ways. They don't seek God anymore. They're not, they're not, notice, they don't, it says there in verse four, they don't seek him. They They don't care about him. They're not seeking to know him more. They're too prideful for that. They're self willed, they're self centered, they're seeking their own gain, they're God ignoring now. So their, their sin is number one. They are number one. So there's no room for God in their minds. Whatever they think about God. You know, whenever thoughts about God come into their mind, it's typically just, oh, they, he doesn't exist. Or he doesn't matter. He's a practical atheist. Living like there is no God. Treating people as if there is no God. Treating people as if God is never going to step in and deal with it. And what makes all of this worse for David, think about this. He sees all of this going on. And he's, he's piling on these, these bullet points of God. This is why you need to act. This is why you need to act. And then he gets to verse five, as if it wasn't bad enough that they were treating people this way. God, it looks like they're getting away with it. More than that, they're getting ahead in life. Verse five, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high. Out of his sight, he's not paying attention to you at all. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I won't meet adversity. The wicked are prosperous. He's living the good life. Other people are suffering. He seems to be getting away with all of that. David's going, this is just not fair. This isn't right. While others care about what God thinks and live while God is watching, this guy rarely ever asks, what is God's will towards this person right now? And and how would he want me to act right now? What God wants is far from his mind, mostly non-existent in his mind. Anyone who gets in his way, verse six, he puffs at. So when I was in high school, I had a friend who, whenever you said something that he wasn't, he didn't really like, he just didn't really like that idea. He'd just go like this, you know, Hey, you want to go to talk about, you know, just like like that. That's the idea here. Oh, oh, you have a problem with me? 
Oh, 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 you, you think that, oh, you think you're calling me out right now? Pfft, whatever with you. I do whatever I want to do. He puffs at them. He considers them nothing. See, they, they don't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not moved by them at all because he's just going to do and think whatever he wants. That's the wicked to anyone who would dare oppose them. And even to God, just pff, whatever, God. They, they would not ever say that because there's a difference between the, 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 the tongue in our head and the tongue in our heart. The tongue in our head is like, I shouldn't treat people like this. God is watching. This isn't good. The tongue in our heart is like, do whatever you want, bro. It's no big deal. Just act however you want. Get what you want. Get what you deserve. That's the wicked. It might happen to others, you know, but he's not going to be judged. You know, he's going to, he's going to, he's got that secret thing with the, with the man upstairs and he's going to be able to get around that and, you know, wink and a nod. God and I are good. I'm safe from that calamity stuff. I can, you know, I'm free from concern. Don't need to worry about that at all. Here's the thing. God is patient and they interpret God's patience as he's just letting me go. There must not be anything wrong. I keep getting blessed. All these good things are happening. God must be okay with me. When God's patience is giving them time to repent. But they don't look at that. Verse 7. No, they continue. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and depression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Think about that. Their heart is wicked and out of, the, out of their mouth, their heart speaks, verse 7, and it reveals who they are in their, in their cursing, in their lying. In their, notice that word in verse 7, in their oppression, and in, in they're being cruel to others with the words that come out of their mouths. Like poison in the mouths of snakes. No, it says at the end of verse 7, under the tongues of the wicked, ready at any moment are words that will cause people trouble. They're words that will express their sinful desires that will encourage other people to sin. And, and like the, the bite of a, of a snake, it'll dig deep into a person's heart and cause pain. Then seven and eight, there are this, these new images. He, he paints a picture of this. He says he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor. Then he draws him into his net. The wicked don't care about God, so they lurk. And they attack helpless people. They oppress helpless people. People who won't fight back. People who can't fight back. They are, they're, they're, they are they're just easy pickings for them. They're secretive. There's all that lurking and hiding and secret. They're, they're, they're deceitful. So they say, yeah, everything's okay. But then the traps are sprung and the helpless people are caught. I, was, I did a, a funeral this past week. And the, the brother who's... Um, Father passed away. He was doing a eulogy and he talked about how God used all of these experiences in his life to, to bring his father to Christ at a very old, uh, in his 70s. And he said one of the, the points that really broke him was when, he, was when he, he bef- a guy befriended him and told him about this great financial opportunity and it ended up losing his entire life savings to a Ponzi scheme. He loses everything. That guy gets away scot-free with all the money. That's the kind of guy that's being described here. Lying, oppressing people. What's the result? Verse 10, the helpless are crushed. They're crushed. They're overpowered. They're no match. They're destroyed. They're either murdered, like it says in verse 8, 
or verse 10, there's just the pressure on them constantly that's causing them to sink into their emotions and sink um, in, in just, just, just feeling the weight of the burden of the oppression and the pain and the trouble that the wicked are causing them. They're, 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 they're no match, so they're either going to give up or they're going to, you know, give in to some sin. They're just going to be like, I'm, I'm done with this. While all the wicked, you know, all, while all the while the wicked thinks he's going to get away with all of this. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God's forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see. They flatter themselves in thinking, you know, God's just too busy to, I mean, he's making all the molecules spin and all the, all the planets spin and he's just too busy. He's got to take care of all the grass and all the bugs. Like he's just not looking at me. He's not watching this or if if he is, he doesn't really care because look, everything's fine with me. My life is good. I've got this and I've got that and all these great things are happening to me. So clearly God doesn't care. No, not, not, not so much. Not so much. God is long-suffering with sinners. As a result of that, sinners are, all, are, are um, constantly long in their delaying of their repentance. I'll just keep pushing this. I'll just keep pushing God's patience. Now let me stop here and ask you, as we've gone through the first 11 verses, why is David doing this? Why is he pouring it on thick? You know, 11 verses about, God, these people are awful. What, what, what's going on here? Look at how awful they are. Why is he doing that? Why is he recounting all of the crimes of these practical atheists? Here's what he's doing. He's showing God, God, this is too much for me. This is too hard. He needs help. And he's not being clinical about it. He's being honest about it. So honest, in fact, that he writes a song about it so that thousands of people can sing that song so that when they are in real pain, they can take these, these general ideas and say, God, no, this is what's happening to me. This is what's going on with me. So if we're going to endure suffering that we don't deserve, then point number one, howl to God about your suffering. Howl to God. I wanted a vivid word here, like a... Like a like a wolf at the moon, like howl to him, cry to him, scream to him if you have to, weep, cry. God can handle it. He's not sitting there going, well, okay, like what's wrong with you? Like suck it up. Like that's not God. That's not what you see here. Talk to him, talk loudly, you know, talk out loud, but just talk to him. Don't, Don't stay in your head when you're suffering. Don't talk to anyone but God when you're suffering. Talk to him. Don't be vague. David wasn't vague here. Don't, you don't see David babbling either. He was clear and he was specific saying, God, this is what's happening. Do, do you see this? Talk intelligently. Talk about what's causing the suffering, why it hurts so much. And this is not David complaining or whining, by the way. This is David, this is David prefacing everything with, God, I want your will, but you need to see, like, here's what's going on before I pray for your will. So verses 1 to 11 is David in the words of 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all his anxieties, casting all of his cares on the Lord, knowing that God cares for him. Verses 1 to 11 is is an expression of trust to God. And how do I know that? Because look at verse 1. Notice David, verse 1, addresses God as Lord. We just kind of read through that quickly. But that's God's covenant name. That's God's personal name, Yahweh. This, is, this speaks of relationship. 
So if you're suffering and you're a Christian, remember that you're adopted. You're part of God's family. That when you howl in prayer, you howl to your father. Like when, when Emma, our one-year-old, when she howls, like you, you, you notice it and like you got to respond to that. God is an infinitely better parent than I am. Infinitely better. Will he not respond to you? If you keep your burdens instead of following David's examples here and casting your burdens specifically, honestly on the Lord. If you, if you do that, if you hold on to your burdens, what will happen is you'll become bitter. You'll become angry. You will rehearse the pain and you will begin to doubt God. It'll be the exact opposite of what we're going to see in Psalm 10. But by howling to God about your suffering, you're expressing faith in him, that he's not absent, that he's listening, that he's there, that he sees, that he knows, that he'll respond. When your hope is in the right place, when you're in your suffering, you will come out in the right place when your suffering is over. But if your hope is somewhere else, you're going to know it because you're going to start to become vindictive. You're going to start to become bitter. You're going to have thoughts of immorality. You're going to, you're going to have thought. You're just not going to trust. You're not going to believe. Or worse, you'll just be like, I need to just reject the Lord. I just need to walk away from this. This stuff is a bunch of nonsense because clearly it's not working out right now. Clearly this stuff is a bunch of bunk and so I'm going to take off. How to God. Talk to him honestly about your suffering. Cast your burden on him. Give him what hurt is hurting you. He can handle it. He can hold you. You are not alone. David doesn't stop at howling God, though. Notice he calls on God to act. Verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. David is not going to make the same mistake as the wicked, thinking that God sees but won't act. No, he says, end your patience, God. The need is too great. Act now, Lord. Arise! That word there pictures God as the king on his throne. He hears about his people being attacked and he rises from his throne and he's ready for battle. He is the warrior. He is the protector and defender of his people. That, that, that phrase there in verse 12, lift up your hands. That's a picture of hostility towards one's enemies. It's like the, it's like the Braveheart scene or the, or the gladiator scene where, where, where they're ready for battle and they raise their sword above their head and they're getting ready to charge. That's the idea there. God, charge against my enemy. Go after him. Don't forget us. Don't, 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 don't let it be like, oh God, when are you going to act? What are you going to do? When is this going to happen? Fight for me. He's begging he won't let the afflicted blaspheme. And don't, don't do that. Don't let them do that, God. Verse 13, why do the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you're not going to call into account. God, they're blaspheming you. They're living like you're not even there. They're, they're living like you don't even matter. Like they're, like, like they're just talking about you, but they don't even care about you. What are you going to do about that? He's saying, avenge the blasphemy against you. Defend your honor. God, when you rescue your people, your name is going to be vindicated. Your people are going to be vindicated because they trusted in you when nothing in their experience told them to. The wicked won't be allowed to curse God and destroy people and get away with it. Verse 14, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation. The wicked can think whatever they want. They can live however they want, but God will not be ignored. He has seen the suffering that they've caused. He has taken note. You know, see that right there? He's taken note of it. It's like he wrote it down. Oh, I see that. Oh, I see that. You keep no record of wrongs, but I do. 
And notice that word, those words, uh, vexation and mischief. I see all the trouble. I see all the provoking. I see all the unkindness. And verse 14, that you may take it into your hands. I'm not going to keep you at a distance anymore, all of that suffering. I'm going to bring it close and into my hands so I can really see your suffering. And then so to you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. You've helped those who were suffering before and the helpless are trusting you to do it again. He is, verse 14, the helper, the one who fixes things for people that they can't fix themselves. So verse 14, the helpless, the vulnerable, notice, commit themselves to him. They, they trust him. They, they're devoted to him. They see everything else going on. They see all of the wicked schemes of people out in the world and in their lives and they go, no, I'm committed to the Lord no matter what. This is the real need. This is, this is real need, looking for real help from the only one who can give it. He is the helper. He is the one who will wipe away every tear from every single redeemed eye. And then my favorite verse in the psalm, verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Break his arm is not a prayer for physical violence. The arm is a symbol of strength. And he says, take their strength away and their ability to attack me. Be, be thorough in your justice. He's saying at the end of the verse, call his wickedness to account till you find what? None. That word call means to avenge. Avenge the wickedness until their wickedness is removed completely. Every drop of it paid for. So if David is the model for us here, for how to endure undeserved suffering, then, then we're going to endure that and endure it well. When point number two, we ask God to end our suffering. Ask God to end your suffering. Again, talk to God, be honest with him. Tell him what you, what you want to be done, just like David did here. That's not wrong. Ask him to end your suffering. God says, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So verses 12 to 15 is not a prayer of a vigilante who's going to go take vengeance into his own hand. No, verses 12 to 15, again, is faith. It's, it's faith, it's trust. It's, it's vengeful, murderous thoughts. Those are sinful. The righteous make an appeal to God. God, please end my suffering. And then... They trust him by leaving the timing in his hands. It's not just the love of God or the omnipresence of God that, that's our hope when, when we endure suffering that we don't deserve. The justice of God is our hope as well. That he sees what's happening to you. He knows what's happening to you. And he will respond and he will hold the wicked accountable for every single thing they've done. Or... Or your hope is honest, motive-searching prayers for the salvation of that wicked person so that justice will be done and every crime against you will be paid for, but it will be paid for in Christ on the cross when he received God's justice instead of the wicked person harming you. So if you ask God specifically to end your suffering, if you're suffering, can you apply the passage, chapter 10, verses 12 to 15, to, to your suffering in detail and say, like, God, starting in verse 12, I know you see what he's doing. I know you see what she's up to. God, I'm your kid. I'm weak. 
Let your patience run out. Let, let your patience go away. I need you to act. God, he's mocking you. God, God, you're letting her get away with this. Break his arms. Take away his ability to make me suffer. God, you've helped the weak. You've helped the vulnerable. You've helped the helpless in the past. You've rescued the slaves from Egypt, right? You you rescued Daniel from the lion's den. You rescued the three friends from the fiery furnace. You rescued the Jews from genocide in, in the book of Esther. Rescue me. Rescue me. Help me. End my suffering. And just in case you're wondering, this isn't manipulating God to act. God is not able to be manipulated. However, notice the text. God is teaching us in his word that that we can pray to him this way, that we can pray to him like a child begging dad for help. I need your help. I mean, here's David, this godly example doing that. So we can do the same. And then this song that, that starts just in the depths of despair and trouble ends in the heights. Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. In contrast to the wickedness of men who are of the earth, notice verse 16, God is the king forever. This is God versus man. This is power versus weakness. This is mortality versus eternity. Sure, the wicked have their day now. Sure, they're getting away with it. Sure, they're looking like they prosper. Sure, it looks like nothing's gonna happen to them. But though your suffering lasts for a night, there is joy coming in the morning because he is going to put an end to it. Their pain that they've caused you will end. And notice the text, it will end. It will be purged by the hand of omnipotence. So that, verse 18, they will strike terror no more. Like fog, when the sun rises, it disappears. So to the wicked on that day, on the day that he ends it, the day that Jesus returns, whatever, it is going to end Look at that last line in verse 16. The nations perish from the land. That word perish is in the past tense. It's perfect tense. It means means that this is said in the past tense, but, but it hasn't happened yet. The nations have perished from his land. Well, the nations haven't perished from his land yet. There are still nations in Israel who are against God and against his people. So here is David praying The future, when God rescues his people, he's praying the future as if it's already happened. He is looking into the future and saying, God, you are so certain and your word is so sure that I can rejoice knowing that that day is coming even though it hasn't come yet. He is so certain that God's powerful enough to rescue him, so certain that God will rescue him, that he sings to him like his rescue has already happened. God has heard his desire for his suffering to end. So before God actually intervenes and breaks the arm of the wicked, notice verse 17. In between suffering and the end, verse 17, what does God do with all of these truths? He gives what? Strength. He gives hope. He gives endurance. His hope is being infused into the heart of the sufferer. They can endure because they know their cries have been heard by God. 
And notice in verse 17, he, he inclines his ear to them. He, when they're suffering, he's not distant. He actually leans in and he, he gets closer. He's like, no, I hear your cries. He's leaning in and he's going to act. More than hearing though, God will bring justice to the wicked. Verse 18, some sooner in this life, some later, but all of the wicked sooner or later will pay. Every single one. Their trust in God, considered to be idiotic by the wicked, will be vindicated when God does for those suffering what they've been crying out for him to do. Those who mocked God, those who claimed they're unstoppable, no one can touch them. They thought they were safe. They thought God was too busy. He's forgetful. He's kind of distracted, you know, governing the world. Or I'm just like, he doesn't even matter. He's irrelevant. They're going to see how wrong they were. When the king arrives, on the battlefield, that means the suffering is over. And that will happen in individual lives. And one day that will happen on the whole world, in the whole universe. So if you're going to endure suffering that you don't deserve, then point number three, rejoice in who God is. Rejoice in who God is. He is a warrior for his people. He is a God who sees oppression, defends the weak, rescues them from the wicked. He is a savior. He sees everything. He knows what you're going through. He will deal personally with those who are causing your suffering or, or in his mercy, he will show them mercy and he will punish all of their wickedness on the cross. That either way, justice is going to be done. Rejoice in his past protection. Rejoice in his future protection when he deals with the wicked in your life, when he ends your suffering. It seems like this trial is, is lasted forever, but look at verse 16. There is only one thing in this passage that lasts forever, and it's what? It's the Lord. No suffering lasts forever. It'll soon be over. And so David's saying, help me to focus on what is truly lasting is the king but more than just rejoicing in who God is we also see here that you should depend on God until it's over depend on God until your suffering is over even those who are weakest and most easily taken advantage of verse 14 have committed themselves to God and he will help them so faith trusts God in the dispensing of his justice until then, the righteous make their appeal. They say, God, here's what I need. Here's what's happening, verses 1 to 11. Here's what I need, verses 12 to 15. Timing is in your hands. It's yours. Until then, the righteous make their appeal and they wait. In the words of 1 Peter 4, 19, entrust your soul to your faithful creator. Leave yourself, leave your suffering to him. And then just keep doing what is right. Keep doing what is right. That is what Jesus did. First Peter 4.19 is actually about Christ. That's what he did. No one was more innocent. No one deserved his suffering less than he did. And he suffered the most. Not only at the hands of wicked men, but he also took the wrath of God for all the sin and all the injustice and all the wickedness. He was forsaken. He was abandoned. Listen, so that you would never be and if he can pray for God to forgive his oppressors, if he can pray for the wicked who were taunting him and mocking him and beating him and crucified, if he can pray, God, forgive them. And if he lives inside of you, 
then you can pray the same. Keep, keep in mind, David is full of this worship. He's full of faith. Listen, even though there's no indication of what? There is no indication in this passage that the trial, the suffering was over. None at all. This is not worship and praise and trust as a result of God's deliverance. This is worship and praise and trust in the suffering, in the pain, in the disappointment, in the abandonment. He gives strength and endurance and hope and peace to keep you going to trust, to keep you trusting him. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ is not a guarantee of life of no suffering. You know that, right? Jesus actually guaranteed the opposite. He promised that we would suffer and he promised that he would never leave you ever in your suffering. And you're going to have to choose. Am I going to trust my feelings? Am I going to trust my circumstances or am I going to trust Christ in my suffering? In the meantime, like Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, when he was abused, he didn't respond in kind. When he suffered, the pastor says he did not cause suffering, but continued entrusting himself to his father. His father who saw it all. And Jesus knew that the judge of all the earth would do right. So when the wicked attack your life, you don't have to go into bitterness. You don't have to go into despair. You don't need to harbor thoughts of suicide or homicide. You don't, you don't need to believe that God has abandoned you. He hasn't. If you feel that happening, look into the mirror of Psalm 10 and rejoice in a God who will rescue you in his time. And so look to him, depend on him, trust on him until he does. Listen, if you don't depend on God, you're going to depend on something, right? The resources to help you, the strength, the hope that you need is, is not inside of you. It's not in substance. It's not in revenge. It's not in gossip or slander. It's not in other people, many of whom are, are great and, and helpful, but, the, but the, the help that you need is not in them. Now listen, there's a place for counseling. We offer that here. Love to help you. There's a place for calling the police or filing a lawsuit or pressing charges if laws are actually being broken. Oh, I'm just trusting the Lord. No, like call the cops if there's a crime. There's a place for pursuing church discipline, weeping with a friend, visiting a lawyer, getting financial advice, looking to get a new job too. However, you're going to set yourself up for hardship and bitterness, anger, immorality, and even pain if you trust in anything more than you trust in Christ. Your pride will well up. With it, bitterness and revenge will well up. You'll flee into substances or food or some other false refuge. If you trust in self or people or feelings or false idols, instead of God, you'll, you will actually get worse. If you haven't rejoiced, if you haven't trusted God in your trial, if you've trusted in other things, you know it because there are wicked thoughts that continually well up, wicked acts that you're tempted to do or maybe do. That those are things that you may need to ask God for forgiveness for, even though you're the one suffering. Worship God and trust him. Demand that those who try to help you point you to him. Trust in him until your suffering is over. And what the wicked meant for evil, listen. What the wicked mean for evil, what the wicked are doing with evil intentions, God can take and use for good. So go to Christ. Let him be an anchor for your soul when your life is hard. Notice the acrostic with the points there. H-A-R-D. 
When times are hard, how do, you, how, does, how do the godly respond? What do the godly do? They howl out to God. They cry to him. They, they beg him. They, they, they ask him to end their suffering. They, they re- rejoice. They remind themselves of the goodness of God and how kind he is and how he's rescued so many. He is a rescuer and a warrior and a savior. And they depend on him to be who he is until that suffering is over. Now this morning I've spent my time speaking to those who are going through suffering. Suffering that they don't deserve. But what if that's not you? Not just that you're not suffering right now. Things are good. Everything's great. No, what if you're the person that's causing the suffering in other people's lives? What if you happen to be here today? You're not the receiver of the suffering. You're actually the dispenser of the suffering. I wonder if anyone here puts on the Dr. Jekyll mask when they come to church. And then they're the wicked Mr. Hyde when they get home or when they go to their work. You know, treating people, treating their spouse like there is no God. What if I was talking about all the suffering that wicked people cause and it was getting more and more uncomfortable for you because I, you realized, wait a minute, he's talking about me. That wasn't me talking about you. That was God talking about you. And if God in his kindness brought you here today to hear your life described in verses 1 to 11 as the oppressor, as the one who is dispensing the suffering, listen, God in his kindness is calling you now to repent. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till later. Do it now. Do it right now. Again, why? How many times does David have to say, God, they're living like you're not watching. God, they're living like they're never going to stand in judgment for this. How much longer are you going to put off and keep tempting God to drop the hammer of his justice on you? You don't want God's justice, right? Anybody want that? I don't want justice. I want, I want mercy. I want mercy in his God's kindness that leads us to repentance and his patience is an expression of his kindness. Don't put it off anymore. Now, today, your sins against your wife, your sins against your husband, whatever it is, it's filling up with every passing day. And as long as you don't repent, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it's just gonna crash on you. You know that, like I said, your head knows this right? Like your head is like, this is right. This is true. God is just, yeah, he'd punish his sin. Yep. That's true. But your heart's like, ah, forget, ah, who cares? Idiot up there, preacher. No, you can't trust them. Don't trust me. Read the text. If you see your portrait in that text as the oppressor, repent today. Jesus will receive you. Jesus will forgive you. He, there is nobody to come that comes to him that he will cast out. There's nobody that will come to him that he's like, you are too awful. You are too much of a hypocrite. You are too bad. You are too wicked. Get out of here. Not him. He is merciful. He is kind that you are here today is an expression of his kindness. So do not put your fingers in your ear. Do not look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and walk away unchanged. Respond today. One last thing. One man wrote a poem about this passage. And it's with this that I close. I pray that it's helpful. Isaac Watts, he says, 
Why does the Lord stand off so far? And why conceal his face when great calamities appear in times of deep distress? Lord, shall the wicked still deride thy justice and thy power? Shall they advance their heads in pride and still thy saints devour? They put your judgments from their sight and then insult the weak, the poor. They boast in their exalted height that they shall fall no more. Arise, O God, lift up your hand, attend our humble cry. No enemy shall dare to stand when God ascends on high. Proud tyrants, both nationally and personally, proud tyrants shall no more oppress, no more despise the just, and mighty sinners shall confess they are but earth and dust.